Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. If a man were called to fix a period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. The frontiers of that extensive monarchy were guarded by ancient renown and disciplined valor. The gentle but powerful influence of laws and manners had gradually cemented the union of the provinces. Their peaceful inhabitants enjoyed and abused the advantages of wealth and luxury. With me today is Tom Holland. Tom, that was, of course, Edward Gibbon, writing in the first volume of history. Who else could have history. been? Who else, Who else could, could it have been? been? You recognize, <laughs> probably you recognize him from his uh, LPs, which you probably carried around in a wheelbarrow when you were 10 oh, or something like that. Of course. Yeah, he's exactly. never, yeah, he's never he, off my When iPhone. Thomas Edison recorded him famously in his New Jersey studio, that wealth, <laughs> that luxury, that peace was purchased um, by the legions of Rome. Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to compliment you on the excellence of your, um, of your English accent. Well, that um, that was four years in Oxford does that, you see. And that well, was, was, I'm not was saying that was more or less an impersonation of one of my senior tutors, but it was pretty close. <laughs> okay, um, well, it was. Uh, uh, but you, um, we should begin. Um, you are a uh, fan favorite, and now you went off after being on this podcast, you went off to create your own, which is I now did. the number one podcast in Britain. It's, so it's like uh, well, the chairman of Tesco. I think, co- I, I think we just let's just let it let it ride. Well, all right, you okay, know? yeah. yeah. L- let's, right. let's let's so leave it's that a little bit like the, It's a little bit like the chairman of Tesco coming to a hippie co-op in North Devon, which reeks mm. of patchouli and has ninety-nine varieties of hemp. Right. So and I, and I, what, I'm, what chairman? I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to have the chairman of Tesco to come in. Yeah, I mean, what chairman of a vast anonymous? Um, multinational supermarket chain would not want to go to an individual, tastefully decorated, personally sourced delicatessen. That's what I. That's what I say. With the best hoagies in Philadelphia, um, to mix up my metaphors. Uh, but welcome back. I wanted to um, begin, kind of where we left off, which is Dominion. Was you finally getting to grips with how weird the classical world was and how we suppress it beneath a veneer? Or well, a very thick layer cake of Christianity, and I suppose you kind that, of yeah. begin. Yeah, you kind of begin Pox by saying, "Hey, you know, the Romans were not us." So, could you develop that briefly before we get in? Because I've I've tried to select four episodes, which will highlight some of the otherness of of this period in which you're discussing. Yeah, so Dominion, the, the previous book that we talked about, was a history of Christianity. Yeah. And the argument w- of the book essentially was that we have been so conditioned by 2,000 years of Christianity in the West that we don't even realize that we're goldfish swimming in Christian waters. And I guess that Pax is is also a riff on that theme, except it's coming at it from the from, from a different perspective. So the Christians do pop up in this book, but only as kind of inconsequential weirdos who, yeah, very, very kind of tiny mention. And the ambition throughout the book is to try and show the world through 
Roman eyes rather than through our own eyes. And so throughout it, I try and present to the reader things that may well seem utterly shocking, but as though they are Roman readers and would take them for granted. So just, of course, just the, way the phrase... Are. Yeah, the phrase, of course, in this book does a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> if you see, of course, you can almost bet that something hideous or terrible is about to come up. And, and the, I mean, and the title, it's in the title, uh, Pox, capital, uh, capital letters, mm -hmm. um, deeply ironic, because it's been purchased by a great deal of blood and yeah, violence. So so that's obviously an allusion to the Pax Romana, that often translated as the Roman peace. But I think you could translate Pax as well as pacification. Um, there is something very active and aggressive about the Roman notion of peace. I think ours in English is much more passive. And there is no question that Pax is something that has to be imposed and then upheld at the point of a sword. So the Pax Romana, I mean, the Romans would not have seen anything paradoxical at all about the fact that it is upheld by overwhelming monopoly of military violence. Mm -hmm. uh, let's begin with military violence. Um, if people have, as they should, read Rubicon and Dynasty, as I will insist on calling it, um, yeah. then they know uh, that uh, Rubicon it's, uh, begins with this period of unsettling civil war. Uh, several of them. And, and in many ways, I was just thinking the social wars, I mean, there's a, they're essentially civil wars too. I mean, it, sure. maybe yeah. if you're not, if you're Latin, but if you're Italian, they sure as hell are. Um, yeah. And so there's this long period of unsettling civil war and then the Octavian's, Octavian's peace. And then suddenly, um, the year of the four emperors, we've got this sudden rupture of this fabulous era of peace and tranquility that even crazy Caligula hadn't really a been able to disturb. So could we briefly gallop through this, the year of the four emperors? Well, Cali Caligula, notoriously, top? Caligula notoriously lamented the fact that nothing awful had happened in his reign and so he wouldn't be remembered. So <laughs> that, you know, that absolutely just, speaks to something. Just like Bill Clinton. Yeah, well, it speaks to something <laughs> deep in the Roman character that, you know, wars and catastrophes in some way are exciting because they enable a man to kind of show to, to show his mettle. I guess, I mean, mm. the, the, the civil wars that you mentioned that, that are the theme of Rubicon, and Rubicon, of course, is named after the river that Julius Caesar crosses, and it unleashes um, a devastating civil war that ends up destroying um, the, 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 the Republican system of government that Rome had enjoyed for many centuries. Um, and as you say, uh, established on the rubble of the Republic, um, the man who comes to be called Augustus, a man who is midway between heaven and earth, that's basically what Augustus means, he establishes an autocracy and he lives for so long that by the time he finally dies, pretty much everyone in Rome is taking the autocracy for granted. And Augustus is elevated up to the heavens, he becomes a god. And because of that, his heirs the people who have his divine blood in their veins are seen as being somehow more than human. And it's that that enables his successors to lay claim to the legitimacy that they do. Now, the last of his lineal descendants, the last person alive who has Augustus's blood in his veins is the notorious Emperor Nero. And basically the, the reason that- Or the Emperor Nero. He's also he, very yeah. auxorious. Yes, he is auxorious. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he loves his-, his succession of wives he gets through. He doesn't love his first one. He has her executed, but he loves his second one, mm -hmm. Papaya Sabina. Um, but she doesn't give him a son. And so Nero is 
childless. And he ends up basically thinking that um, uh, aristocratic figures out in the provinces who have legions at their back are, are threatening his position. And so he ends up committing suicide. And this leaves the Roman people staring down the barrel of a real problem. Because if it's the blood of Augustus in the veins that legitimates an emperor, what do you do when there's no one left who can boast that? And so Nero dies in AD 68. And the question of what happens next kind of looms over the Roman world like an increasingly darkening thundercloud. Go on. <laughs> you want me to go on? Okay. All right. I will. Yeah. That was a kind yeah. of, that was a cliffhanger. Um, it was. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's going to happen? Yeah. What, so, I'm sorry. What, uh, I'm sorry. Tom. What happens then, Tom Holland? <laughs> okay. Well, so there are various possible possibilities. Perhaps um, some people think the, the conservatives. Perhaps we could go back to a republican system of government, but that's not going to work because the republic doesn't have anyone with legions who are willing to defend it. Um, but there is a guy who is of impeccable republican descent who can, you know, it's kind of like. I don't know, laying claim to a, a pre-colonial lineage, I guess, in American terms. I mean, you know, you can trace your ancestry back to the Pilgrim Fathers or something like the Mayflower. that. Mayflower. The Mayflower, exactly. Um, and this is a guy called Galba. And he's old, he's uh, cantankerous, he's not a natural populist, but he does have uh, various legions behind him. And so he marches on Rome and he makes himself emperor. And he is absolutely convinced that... Um, you know, what Rome needs, the, the Roman people need to be toughened up. They've had it too soft. There've been lots of bread. There's been lots of circuses. Um, it would be good, to, you know, the smack of firm government. Um, and the fact that he's old, the fact that he's craggy means that he's an obvious contrast to Nero, who kind of, you know, is a great showman. But the problem for, um, for Galba is that um, nobody really wants this. <laughs> so within, <laughs> within a few weeks of uh, the new the new year of AD 69, he's been killed, toppled in a coup by a guy who's a very ambivalent figure called Otho, who on the one hand had been um, a, a kind of enthusiast for Galba. He'd come with him from Spain um, uh, on the march on Rome. But Otho was also a, a very close mucker of Nero. In fact, he had slept with Papaya Sabina, the woman who becomes Nero's wife, and quite what was going on there, there's much debate, whether it was a threesome, whether Nero just kind of grabbed Papaya off Otho. Nobody's quite sure, many different interpretations. But Otho ends up being exiled by Nero to what's now Portugal, which is why he's in the Iberian Peninsula, ready to join Galba in his march on Rome. And Galba has the image of a playboy for the Romans. So he's a kind of Neronian figure. He wears a toupee. He depilates his legs. He gets up to all kinds of non-Galba kind of behaviour. Um, and it's Otho, when when Galba refuses to appoint him his heir, who, who launches the coup. And so Galba ends up, ends up um, dead. And Otho, with his toupee and his smooth legs, ends up emperor. And lots of people in Rome are appalled by this because they think having got rid of Nero, now we've got someone who's just a kind of pale shadow of Nero. Meanwhile, shall I carry on with the drama of the year that is called yeah, the year of the four emperors? So on the banks right. of the Rhine. 
Right, exactly. We've had two emperors, but on the banks of the Rhine, we are approaching the uh, appearance on the scene of a third, who is a man called Vitellius, who is commander of four of the legions on the Rhine, which is the highest concentration of manpower anywhere in the Roman world. And his his legions basically say, we are, you know, we're the top soldiers in the in the empire. We are the ones who should be making the empire emperor. We want you to be emperor. And there's the veiled kind of unspoken threat that if Vitellius doesn't go ahead and become emperor, then he'll be, he'll, you know, he'll be got rid of. Exactly. Now, Vitellius is, um, he's of aristocratic descent. He's a man who's very fond of pies and donuts. He's got a kind of Homer Simpson physique. Um, and he doesn't really want to be emperor. He knows that he's not really cut out for it, but he doesn't really have a choice. Um, and so his legions go hurtling down to invade Italy. Um, Otho frantically musters what troops he can. Um, the Vitellian and Othonian armies meet uh, outside the city of Cremona in North Italy and the Vitellians win. Um, they, they are the better, the more hardened troops. And Otho, who has been roundly condemned as uh, you know, a, a roué, kind of epicene um, uh, sub-Nero, shows himself to be a a tremendous chip off the old Roman moral block because he could have carried on fighting, but because he doesn't want to perpetuate civil war, he decides that he will kill himself. And this is what he does over the protests of his own men. Um, And so Vitellius becomes emperor, occupies Rome, and that seems to be that. Except that right. there's a further twist because this is the year of the four emperors. So who's the fourth emperor? The fourth emperor is a guy called Vespasian, uh, who is away in Judea, what's now Israel, uh, the land of the Judeans, the Jews, and they have risen in revolt. Um, and Nero had sent Vespasian out to crush this revolt, which Vespasian had done very, very effectively. Uh, really, by um, the time that uh, the year of the four emperor emperors begins uh, only jerusalem is waiting to be cracked so vespasian halts proceedings approaches um the, the the governors and the prefects of the neighboring provinces gets them on board and decides that he's going to have a crack at making himself emperor and he does this very effectively um because vitellius basically is not cut out to be emperor and by the end of the year vespasian is undisputed emperor of rome and the roman world and all because a Jewish prophet said that he was the last animal in the book of Daniel or some such, at least in, in your interpretation. That's what Josephus says, you're the guy, you're going to be emperor, and things are going to be great for you. Right. So uh, we know a lot about this period because we have multiple sources for it. And one of them is written by a Judean uh, whose Roman name comes to be Josephus, who had actually opposed Vespasian. He'd been in command of the defense of Galilee against the uh, the Roman forces. He ends up getting captured in highly dubious and suspicious circumstances that he tries to <laughs> he, spin. He, he, he survives a mass suicide by the providence of by the providence of God. By the providence of God, <laughs> he does, yes. Yeah. Um, and he's brought in chains and before by Vespasian. Not and he says to Vespasian, you're going to become emperor. And in due course, when this happens, Vespasian remembers it and liberates Josephus, who then becomes a kind of um, a cheerleader for Vespasian oh. and his regime. 
Well, let's talk about something which I, th- I think this is a great topic uh, because it's something that we've seen movies, endless movies about it, especially back in the, the – literally, there was a, a entire genre, right? The swords and sandals and sand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's uh, there's Demetrius a cocktail, and the blood and sand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, we've seen the Colosseum or the Flavian Amphitheater, as it should rightly be called for classical nerds out there. Um, and yet, we don't realize how weird it is. And we 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 kind of we also take away yeah. the blood from it, and we also we also don't understand the way that Romans see animals, which I, I think is a, a part of this. And so I've been reading for like the last year or two. You've been some of the best tweets are actually from Pliny the Elder that you put on the <laughs> yes. on, on Twitter. And so uh, Pliny the Elder has a lot to say about the way that Romans see the animals that they're bringing to the Colosseum to kill. Uh, yeah, so Pliny the Elder is a kind of one man Wikipedia. Uh, he's a, he's a, a great yes. encyclopedist, and I think that um, there's a sense in which imperial peoples who feel that they're ruling a universal empire are perhaps particularly given to compiling encyclopedias. So I think Wikipedia could be cast as an expression of um, the superpower status of the United States, just mm-hmm. as the Encyclopedia Britannica was a product of the British imperial period. In a sense, Pliny the Elder's ambition to write an account himself of basically every fact that there is in the in in the world which is obviously i mean a hopeless one but he does it a, a very very good effort and he covers all kinds of things and among the things he covers are animals and um it is very interesting what he has to say about them because you realize that um in a way just as as pliny kind of ident working things out about animals studying them he is in a way making them subject to roman power so in the same way the transplantation of animals from africa or from tiger or from caledonia to the amphitheaters to be put there to entertain the roman people this is a demonstration of the universal reach of roman power so there's an extraordinary thing i mean this is this is not um a new development by any means. When the Romans are conquering Africa in the, the second and first centuries BC, it's their policy when they capture a lion that has been um, attacking sheep or cattle or whatever to crucify them, to make the animal kingdom Good. understand that no beast, even if it's the king of the beasts, has the right to oppose Roman rule. That makes complete sense if you start thinking kind of. like a Roman. I mean, it's it's a bandit. It's an outlaw. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it, it has to be, and just like, like Jesus and like Spartacus and 9,999 followers, they all have to be shown, be demonstrations of Roman power. Yeah. And so crucifixion is a demonstration of Roman power. And of course, the, um, the uh, exposure in the Colosseum of criminals, whether as people are being executed, whether as people who are being fed to or commissioned to fight wild animals or most famously as gladiators. I mean, that is absolutely it. It's an expression of Roman power, but it, it's more its its more than that. The thing about the Colosseum is, and the Colosseum is the first amphitheater in Rome. I mean, this is the weird thing. Every Roman mm. city across the empire has a, a, a stone amphitheater if it's, if it's of any status, but Rome doesn't until Vespasian and his son Titus set themselves to building it. And it's inaugurated by Titus, the son of Vespasian, the guy who in, had ended up conquering Jerusalem in AD 70. And I think for the Romans were obsessed with knowing 
where what people's rank was, where they stood in relation to everyone else. And traditionally, back in the days of the Republic, this had been done by um, a magistrate called the censor who conducted a census. And it wasn't just that you you know, you'd be registered as a Roman citizen, but your place in the hierarchy of citizenship would be punctiliously identified. And I think there's a sense in which the Colosseum is a vast census in stone because the positioning of people, you know, are you in the front row? Are you up in the gods? That is the whole point. It's the Roman people assembling and gathering to watch displays that dramatize the power and the authority of the Roman people and, of course, of the Caesar who is is laying on these extravagances. So it is, in that sense, a very kind of civic experience for everyone. It's violence Even though it involves a lot of blood. Yeah. 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 Well, that, 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 you know, that's combined some of the most important Roman things. I mean, because to what extent are the death of animals or criminals a, a sort of sacrifice? There's nothing sacral. I mean, I, I can't. I've, I, I'm finally using. I get five pounds for this. I finally use sacral with you. Is there? Yes. Is there any kind of? There's. There's no way in which this is seen as. Is there a? Is there some? It, it so gladiatorial combat definitely has seems to have had a. And I'll use the word sacral uh, quality. Oh, thank um, you. Oh, that's a. You know, there are various confused accounts of of what the origins of this custom was, but I think that um, the likeliest explanation is that. Um, people were engaged to fight one another um, to pacify the spirits of those who had departed. And in time, the the memory of this becomes diluted by the sheer drama and intoxication of the sporting spectacle. But it's never entirely forgotten. And I think it's a key aspect of what is happening when Titus inaugurates the Colosseum is that he is emperor against a backdrop of terrible events. So obviously there's been the, the, the civil wars of AD 69, but there's also been a terrible fire that has burnt down the the um, uh, the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitol, the kind of the, the most sacred building in Rome. There's been a terrible plague. And then of course, there's been um, probably the most famous natural disaster, not just in Roman history, but in the whole of history, which is the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. And uh, incidentally, uh, had killed Pliny the Elder, who, as well as being an encyclopedist, was the admiral of the fleet that was based in the Bay of Naples. So these things could not have happened, the Romans tend to take for granted, unless the gods are in some way angry. And a religio for the Romans is the bond that you establish with the gods. And you can do this by offering sacrifice, by celebrating a festival, by instituting a priesthood, whatever, all these religiones. And if disasters still ensue, then it means that the religiones are not strong enough, that they need refurbishment. And again, I think that there is a sense in which the inauguration of the Colosseum, this vast, colossal edifice, the huge scale of the entertainments that are laid on, it's not just about entertainment, I think. I think it is also about appeasing the gods. And perhaps in the case of um, the dead of Pompeii and Herculaneum, of pacifying their, 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 their ghosts because they haven't been given proper funerary rites. Um, and so perhaps by staging these, these games in the Colosseum, I think there is a kind of supernatural de development, an angle to what's going on. It, this is really unfair to ask you about for numbers, <coughs> but 
when these when like the inaugural games of the of the Flavian Amphitheater, how many animals, how many people are killed on the regular at such a such entertain at such well, sacral I, entertainments? I, I don't have the stats to hand, but they are on an unprecedented scale. So Suetonius gives the figures, um, and they're colossal. Mm. And I think they're probably to be trusted. Suetonius was um, a, a man who worked in the Secretariat under Hadrian, so he almost certainly had access to um, to the stats. I mean, the stats may have been fiddled, but but basically there were a lot, uh, and the, mm. the festivities went on for a very long time, as they had to, bearing in mind, I think, um, both the need of, of um, Titus to, to try and secure the legitimacy of his regime in the eyes of the people, but also a kind of proper need to to give the gods what they obviously haven't been been getting. Mm-hmm. <coughs> well, Titus dies quite suddenly and is succeeded uh, by his brother Domitian, uh, who is no one's favorite emperor, I don't think. Uh, you say a strain of paranoia came naturally to him. Nice, very nice phrase, which made immediately made me write in the margin Richard Nixon, um, which, you know, there, yeah. there's my Richard Nixon yeah. thing for, you know, yeah. so to make Sandbrook happy. Um, but imagine, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean the, I, imagine a Richard Nixon who has supreme power and who yeah, doesn't that, have to worry about, you thing. know, people complaining because people have burgled hotels in um, Washington. I mean, that's, who cares? That's the he can do what he it. likes. He's, he's the Caesar. So Domitian, unlike Vespasian, and unlike Titus, had not been involved in the suppression of the Judean revolt. And the suppression of the Judean revolt had been brilliant for Vespasian and Titus because um, it enabled them to cast themselves as successful military men. And that is what the word imperator, from which we get the English word emperor, had originally meant in Latin. It was an em- it was a general who had won victory on a battlefield. So to a degree that that no one could really boast since the time of Augustus and Tiberius, the first two emperors. Vespasian and Titus can say, we are proper imperatores and and portray themselves as craggy, virtuous, republican figures as a consequence of that. Um, Domitian can't do that. Um, But he absolutely buys into the notion, I think, that the gods are angry with Rome and he feels that he has been appointed by the gods to redeem the Roman people and to bring them back into favour. And he has no qualms whatsoever of pushing that kind of autocratic sense of his purpose and rubbing the nose even of the most high-born senators in, in, in the sense that he is, he is a dominus, he is a master, he is a lord, a word that no Caesar before him had used. They, that he's the first person to use that? Yeah, so Augustus had pointedly he he would lose it if anyone applied the word dominus lord master yeah. to um to him but but Domitian uses it unapologetically <laughs> you're right Here, this is a there's a little i mean i i i love reading you um it's uh but i also get really jealous when i read your damn sentences and uh and here's and here's one of them the roman people were to imagine the eye of caesar as fixed perpetually upon them penetrating the innermost recesses of their homes keeping track of their most private activities Domitian, faced by irrefutable evidence that the gods, despite all his previous efforts, remained in a state of anger where the Roman people had doubled down on his determination to appease them. 
So now yeah. he's like, I mean, I know you're thinking of the Lord of the Rings. It's the eye. The eye is searching <laughs> Possibly back the and eye forth. of Sauron. Possibly. Yeah, the eye of Sauron. searching back and forth across yeah. the empire, looking for those who are failing to appease the gods. So he's like, he's like a he's an anticipation of Diocletian in some ways there. I think even more, he's an anticipation of the Christian emperors of the fourth century. And I kept thinking when I was writing mm. about Domitian, I mean, even though he's kind of notorious among Christian apologists for having persecuted the Christians, I mean, it's, whether that's actually historically true is much debated, but he's remembered yeah. by Christians as hostile to Christianity. But I think he would have loved Christianity, actually. He would have loved to be a Christian emperor because <laughs> he he's a very moral figure. He feels that he has a duty to the gods and he's going to fulfill it. And that requires him to kind of reach into every nook and cranny. He micromanages everything. He micromanages the weight of the coins. He micromanages the fittings on the on the water pumps. He micromanages the architectural details of the Colosseum. We've gone nothing. from Richard Nixon to Stalin now. I mean, this is this is or like, Justinian, this is a sort of, the great emperor Justinian, yeah, or Justinian uh, in the sixth yeah, century. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, good, yeah, yeah. So he then, uh, I think that. Uh, certainly a very weird, very Roman episode in his reign is the execution of the chief Vestal Virgin. Um, I, I just heard another classicist on another podcast say that we only know the names, I think, of the Vestal Virgins who were executed, three or four in the history of yeah. the entire inst institution. Yeah. Um, but the Vestal well, Virgins are so deep in the roots of what it means to be Roman. So it's, we, it, it's, it's, it is the archetype, I think, of Roman weirdness. So could you explain the importance well, of the Vestals? I, I, I mean, I think not weird by the standards of, of ancient peoples in a pre-industrial pre world, because they are the guardians of the, the hearth fire of Rome. So Vesta yeah. is the goddess of the hearth fire, and she has this I round just, temple they are, in the forum. They are the, they are the symbol of what is other about Rome to us, I think, in many ways, or what's, I, I suppose what's, so, what's yes. different. Yeah. Yes, but um, I mean, you can see why in a pre-industrial age, the idea of a hearth is incredibly important to every Roman mm -hmm. household. If the fire goes out, mm -hmm. then you know the house is effectively dead. And the same applies to the city itself. And so right from the beginning, the, the virgins who are consecrated to, um, to Vesta have responsibility for keeping the flame alive. And again, it's this idea that if, if crimes are committed, if the religiones are not upheld, then disaster will be visited on Rome. And it's you know, a, a vestal who compromises her virginity, it's not just a sin against um, against her, her vows. It's not just even a sin against um, the Roman people. It's an offense against Vesta and the, and the entire supernatural framework of the city. So and you don't have to be a Jungian to see the connection between fire and purity and sin and all the rest of it. You know, I mean, right. it's just and you also you don't have to be a Jungian to see um, that there are there are certain kind of psychological shadings to the the punishment that is visited on a, a vestal who is convicted of um, sleeping with a with a man, which is to be walled up alive in a cave. Um, and this is what happens under Domitian. It's basically oh. seen by Domitian's time as a very, very extreme policy. Um, but but Domitian feels this is what the times require, and so he imposes it. And she would have been a well-born from a, a very yeah, elite sure. family, would she not? Yeah, so her family yeah. are yeah, following and wailing 
I mean, a horrible fate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, isn't that the case? They always give her some milk and oil. So, and maybe a little, uh, something so they can say that she wasn't deliberately starved to death. They left her some food, but then they bury her. Very Jesuitical. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of Domitian is eventually assassinated by whom? Uh, he's assass- he seems to have been assassinated by um, a posse of resentful freedmen. So freedmen, freed slaves, um, are by this point increasingly providing um, emperors with, I guess, what you, what you might anachronistically call a civil service. And Domitian, again, unafraid to crack the whip with them. Um, he's notorious for his paranoia. Um, it's said that in, in the palace he, he has... Um, the walls lined with a, a kind of marble that can be polished up so that he can always see people, you know, see their reflection if they're coming up behind him. Um, but he he ends up dead. And there are lots of people who are very upset by this. He's very popular with the Praetorians. He's very popular with the military. Um, he's been a pretty good emperor in terms of um, stabilizing the currency, in terms of building up vast resources of, of military manpower along the Danube, where there is a highly hostile and dangerous people called the, um, uh, called the Dacians. So he's done, he's actually done a pretty, but he, he is widely hated by the senatorial classes. So it's kind of, I guess it's being very popular on Twitter, but not getting the approval of the New York times. It's something like that. And so when, um, but, when, uh, Do- when Domitian is toppled, the set, Large numbers of the Senate are absolutely static, and they pull down. They commission the pulling down of a great equestrian statue of his in the in the Forum. They smash his monuments. They even get ladders and go up to the top of you know temple pediments and pull down his 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 statues there. And um, actually, we talked about Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, who was Pliny's nephew and present with Pliny the Elder, and an eyewitness of the eruption of Vesuvius. He writes much later about what a pleasure it was to smash the images of this absolute monster. Um, and the, the, the self-imagery of Domitian caused much mockery and, and, uh, and, and contempt because Domitian was notoriously balding. He had uh, male pattern baldness, supposedly. But on all his coins and statues, he was shown with a full head of hair. Um, and so this was... <laughs> I, I I can't judge anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, but but then in due course, um, he's you know he's he's Domitian is succeeded in ninety eight. Um, first, there's um, a guy called Nerva who who rules very briefly, but then the best soldier in the empire succeeds Nerva, uh, a man called Trajan, and Pliny will write him a but, but six before get to, hour before get to Trajan praising him for having a ret- a retreating hairline saying you know this is obviously a sign from the gods that you're to be respected so Pliny's having it you know every way (laughs) but before we get to Trajan why is there no year of four emperors when Domitian is I mean if the legions like him so much I mean why isn't there why aren't there contenders to come we don't have a we don't have a the same collapse that we had with the death of Nero (laughs) we don't have the same collapse that we had you know with the death of Commodus um, I think that I think the people have learned their lesson, and I think that the stability of the state, which is a contrast with 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 um, the condition of the empire after the death of Nero, means that the senatorial elites and the commanders of the various armies recognise that it would be foolish to 
plunge the to plunge the world back into civil war and it's obvious that nerva who is um he, he's a very distinguished senator he's pretty old um he's not going to be around for long um and he chooses to adopt as his son trajan who is universally recognized as being the best soldier and therefore in a way the best candidate to be emperor and it establishes a tradition that will run throughout the second century and will justify that passage that you read from uh, from gibbon of a succession of emperors adopting the person they think is best suited to succeed them so trajan as you say is the best soldier of his generation has the proclivities and the habits of a bluff, hardy soldier, right. training, wine, boys, and going to war. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when, you know, we were probably reading the same books about the Roman Empire. You just took it farther than I did. There's little ones that came from small English publishers, yeah. lavishly illustrated throughout. And, you know, there's always the map of the world, Roman Empire during Trajan's reign, you know, and when you're eight, you say, the finest of emperors. This is that guy who really did Optimus it. Optimus That's what we're really yeah. in it for. Optimus princeps, farthest boundaries, war, war, you know, teaching the barbarians who's boss, let's go legions. <coughs> of course, it's a little uglier than that. So we should briefly talk about, you know, uh, what happens well, to the Dacian, Dacians. I mean, um, and for one thing, I, I mean, that there is – both you and I mean Goldsworth, Adrian Goldsworthy, really persuade me that Trajan really did overextend things. He took a good thing a little bit too far. Um, I mean, you say ugly. The Romans didn't see it by and large as ugly. They they thought it was tremendous um, because there's a, a kind of nagging anxiety, <laughs> particularly among the, the 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 Roman elite, that the Romans have become soft. I mean, you saw that with with um, right. with Galba. With Galba. Um, but yeah. you see it as well with Tacitus, who's the greatest Roman historian and who's writing in this period. And Tacitus's anxiety is that um, greatness has served to soften the Romans, that they are going to end up unworthy of the empire that they have come to rule, um, and that all the barbarians lurking beyond the frontiers who are you know, not sapped by baths and wine and gladiators will end up conquering the empire. Um and he sees Domitian and his failure, basically, to um, defeat the Dacians as evidence for this. So the fact that Trajan, capitalizing on the fact that he's got a full treasury from Domitian and he's got all these troops parked on the frontier with, uh, with the Dacians, promptly crosses the Danube and embarks on a kind of classic Roman war of conquest. This is seen as being as, as brilliant. And the fact that, you know, so Pliny praising um, Trajan's... Uh, lack of hair is able to present him as a, a, a kind of craggy Republican figure as Vespasian had been presented. This is the kind of thing that happened in the Republic and it's still happening. Uh, and this is brilliant, but we can still have all the fruits of it because the Dacians control all kinds of gold mines and silver mines. And so Trajan really has his cake and eats it because he's able to cast himself as a traditional Republican era military man taking the Romans back to basics, making Rome great again, hurrah, hurrah. While simultaneously, when he comes back to Rome, having conquered the Dacians, he's able to lavish an incredible amount of cash and make Rome monumental in the way that I think most people today think of Rome. So if you think of, I don't know, the panning shots in Gladiator, that 
the 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 sense of the kind of the marble splendor that's a really trajan's creation he's the guy who sets the seal on a process that had begun with augustus of making rome a city of marble out of a city of brick now you you're right that i think he, trajan gets carried away because he ends up doing what everyone knows is a terrible thing for a great imperial power to do which is to invade iraq so Iraq is ruled by the Parthian kings. The Parthians are really the only imperial entity that could conceivably go, you know, rival uh, Roman power. Trajan goes in, very effective. I mean, he conquers um, Armenia and the uplands um, above Iraq. And then he goes down into Iraq itself, reaches um, the Persian Gulf, uh, kind of poses like Alexander. But the whole thing falls to pieces. Um, there's a kind of insurgency and Trajan ends up dead of a stroke. And the guy who has to basically put the fires out and patch the mess up is Trajan's chosen heir, who is Hadrian. And well, is he? Well, I think I think he probably I mean, is. I think he probably is. I think I think relations between Trajan and Hadrian were quite difficult, but Hadrian was the obvious person to succeed him. And even if there was possibly, you know some letters were written and sealed with Trajan's signet ring that hadn't necessarily come from Trajan's own finger. I think that the fact that Trajan is accepted so readily by the army and by the vast mass of the senatorial elite suggests that everyone appreciated that Hadrian was the best qualified to do it because he had been raised from, uh, from childhood, really, to be a military man, but he was also highly intelligent, highly mm-hmm. intellectual, an incredibly mm-hmm. I- impressive man. And he fixes up the mess brilliantly well. Well, we should say also that both of them, and this is an indication of how Rome has changed uh, since Rubicon, uh, both of them are Spanish. Uh, yeah, you know, like, uh, like Russell Crowe. is a Gaul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, just like Russell Crowe. Like Crow. um, but that things have changed so much that um, – that, but it's possible right, but then, for them to not, be the emperor now. Not, I mean, it, it, it was like the Flavian. The Flavians were already back in their time. They they were a little bit for the for someone like um, some like Galba. They're the Flavians are a bit off brand, right? Yeah, so I mean, they're a little bit too country. The, they're equestrians. Vespasian's family, the Flavians, come from um, the the kind of the peasant stock from the hills north of Rome. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not aristocratic in the way that Galba or or you know still right. more Augustus had been. Um, but he does at least come from the environ of Rome. Um, you're right that both Trajan and Hadrian, who are who are relatives, their line of descent are based in Spain. But that doesn't mean that they're Spaniards in the way that I don't know someone who has no connection with Rome is born in Spain. They are the heirs of um, people who've grown up in what's called a colonia, which we might be tempted to anglicize as a colony but i think that's an inadequate translation a colonia is a transplantation of rome to a distant territory so i suppose in a way the closest american parallel would be those enormous bases in afghanistan where you know it's on a grid pattern and there are baseball pitches and uh, moles and all that kind of thing i would actually say i would go to like manila in like 1910 yeah maybe yeah like you know where or Clark Subic Bay and Clark Air Base and places like that. I mean, really enormous, but where also then the surrounding culture yeah. begins to alter and gravitate towards <laughs> it. But um, yeah. 
So yeah, and we could have, we could come up with many we could come up with many brewery analogs. Schindler, for yeah, of example, course. yeah, absolutely, um, would be as yes, well. yeah, yeah. So yeah. hill stations would be would be an analogy. Um, yeah, hill stations. Mm-hmm. So that's where that's where they've come from. But I mean, I think there's no question that it does give them a kind of uh, a more global sense of Rome's destiny than they would have had if they'd come from a purely traditional um, aristocratic family in Rome, of which actually mm-hmm. by this point there are none left. They've all been wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Adrian, um, it's for the, he is about tidying up and making things neat, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of seems to be, he looks, he looks at problems, he figures out how to tidy it up, put it back to, he's, he is sort of, to my mind, the classic project manager. I think he is more impressive than that. Um, he so he is portrayed. Well, I, 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 you're saying project managers aren't impressive. I, I have to disagree with you there. But all right, I, I think he's more ambitious in his goals because I, I, I a project manager right. has practical goals to meet, but Hadrian has mm-hmm. again True. a bit like Domitian, um, actually a bit you know a bit like Augustus. Um, he he has a sense of his mission as being divinely ordained. I mean, every emperor does, but I think Hadrian does definitely. And he is faced with the problem in the East and he decides he's just going to pull troops out of Iraq and stabilize that. But, and there's no question that that's a retreat, but he tries to disguise it by um, not a word of criticism, not a hint of criticism of Tiberius escapes, uh, sorry, of Trajan escapes his lips. Um, And so he tries to pretend that Actually, you know, he gives Trajan a posthumous triumph in in Rome. There's there's no attempt to blame Trajan at all, and so by and large, because he controls the propaganda machine, people don't really dwell on what has happened in in Mesopotamia. But elsewhere, his aim is to stabilize what we would call frontiers, but the Romans didn't really have a word for frontier. So what what he's doing when he say builds an enormous palisade beyond the Rhine, or he um, he sponsors the construction of walls uh, neighbouring the Sahara Desert in, in Africa, or most famously when he lands in Britain in 122 and goes up to the River Tyne and um, offers sacrifice to the ocean and to the River Tyne and builds a bridge over the Tyne that he calls Pons Aelius. Aelius is his, his family name. And builds a fort on the, the the hill opposite and commissions a, a great wall. Traditionally, that is seen as being a defensive policy. So there are kind of Victorian paintings in which, you know, centurions are standing there and Picts and Scots are attacking and all kinds of things. Wow. This is not what is happening at all. Puck of Pook's Hill. Yes, both, exactly. Both very influential so on both th- of there us, I think. There yeah. doesn't seem yeah. to be a rampart at all on Hadrian's Wall. What Hadrian's rule is, Wall is saying is the same as the electric fence that might surround the estate of a tech billionaire. It's saying everything inside this is wealthy and glorious and well-tended and rich and prosperous, and everything outside is for losers. So Hadrian's Wall and all these various palisades and fortifications that are being built, what they are saying to the people beyond them is that you are not worthy of being conquered. You are like the bums who gather at the gates of the rich man. Um, and, you know, this is a very, very, very autocratic, imperial, self-confident perspective. And 
it's mm-hmm. combined with a sense on Hadrian's part that um, the multiplicity of the world, which he's seen for himself, because he's he's toured the, the the vast expanse of the Roman world more completely than any any emperor before him, that just as the, the the lineaments of this empire have to be marked out in a very aggressive way so that no one beyond them can have any doubt that they are kind of beyond the pale. So at the same time, he has a responsibility to bring various peoples together. And in a way, this is something that's been ordained for him by the gods. So that's why I think he's more than a project manager. Um, you know, there is a kind of sacral quality to what he's doing, if I can again use that word. So he's he, not just a... So I, I was... Thinking of him as a technocrat, but he's you're absolutely saying he's, not just a technocrat. He's, he's much more. He's a visionary. He's, yeah, he's yeah. a visionary. And he, yeah, he's a visionary, and we can see that with his approach towards Greece. Yes, which is kind of startling, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of an odd thing to do for an emperor. It's partly because he loves Greece, but he finds he believes that somehow Greece will be important within the empire, or the future empire. Yeah, so he wants to in, he wants to put it within a the jewel within a setting. So Hadrian is very very popular with the troops. And legionaries generally wear beards, and so Hadrian wears a beard. He's say, he's the first emperor to do this. He's saying, "I'm one of you," but at the same time, beards are the markers of Greek philosophers. So he is also marketing himself to his Greek subjects as someone who admires Greek culture. As a boy, he had been called Griculus, the little Greek, and he adores Athens in particular, which has you know become a rather sleepy provincial town. And Hadrian decides that he wants it to to be reawakened to its past greatness. And so he chooses it to be the centre of what comes to be called the Panhellenion, which is a kind of Hellenic equivalent of the, of the European Union, an attempt to fashion a, a single union out of cities who for centuries and centuries have hated each other. And this is very, very, it's very, very successful. And there's one other way in which Hadrian very portentously signals his enthusiasm for Greek culture, which is not only does he adopt as his favourite a, a Greek boy of exquisite beauty called Antinous. But when in due course Antinous drowns in the Nile, Hadrian proclaims Antinous to be a god. And this is the first time that a, an emperor has sponsored the deification of someone who is not from the imperial family. And it's a tremendous success across the Greek world because when Greeks <laughs> look at this boy who was a Greek, the statues of him, they're seeing someone like themselves. And so Antinous, far more than any other imperial figure, apart perhaps from Augustus, takes on a life of his own. There's proper genuine enthusiasm for him. And he, the, the cult of Antinous, again, becomes a kind of emotional glue joining the various cities of the Greek world together. And by extension, in loyalty to to Rome. And so Hadrian, I think, is a man who, far from fighting the way in which um, Greeks are becoming increasingly important in the the Roman world, welcomes it and does all he can to integrate the Greek into the Roman order. And the long-term effects of this are, are, are incredibly momentous because when, you know, a thousand years and more in the future, the final capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople, falls to the Turks. It's a Roman emperor who dies fighting, but it's a Roman emperor who speaks not Latin, but Greek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, so this is tending his garden. He's tending yeah. the garden within the wall that he's built around the empire. 
Um, but different parts of the garden get tended in different ways. And we have, we should finish with what he does to Judea and to, uh, which has also has yeah. immense consequences it does. Uh, with, for yeah. the, uh, it does for, in the, for the next several hundred years. Right. Well, uh, um, yeah, uh, so not builds, just into the 15th he, yeah. century, but into uh, and, until the moment, but into probably, the 21st uh, century. Yeah. So Hadrian into the 21st century. When, when Hadrian is in Greece, among the cities that are enrolled in the Panhellenion is the city of Corinth, which is a, a famous ancient Greek city, but had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, basically to kind of teach the Greeks a lesson of what would happen to them if they didn't knuckle down. Um, and a colonia had been planted on the site of, of, of Corinth. So this was a Roman city. So when, for instance, St. Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to Romans, not to Greeks. Um, but by Hadrian's time, the the Romans of Corinth are being integrated into the Panhellenion. And it's from <coughs> it's from it's from Greece and this integration of the Roman colonia of Corinth into the broader fabric of Greek culture that he advances into Judea and visits the ruins of what had been Jerusalem. And he decides that he's going to turn what had been Jerusalem into a Roman colony. And he treats it with um immense favor. So he, he founds it, he gives it lavish donations, and he calls it Aelia Capitolina. So Aelia after him, himself, his family name, as in Pons Aelias, um, and Capitolina after Capitoline Jupiter, the, the temple of Jupiter on the Capitol Hill. And he thinks he's doing the Judeans a tremendous favor by establishing this, and that he is uh, laying the seeds for a kind of, you know, uh, irenic ecumenical fusion of the Judean and the Greek and the Roman and hurrah, kumbaya. But of course the Judeans, this isn't how they see it at all. And they erupt in kind of bitter, desperate fury, take um, uh, the Romans pretty much by surprise. And the suppression of the revolt as it had been with Vespasian is very, very brutal. And Hadrian is reduced at one point to sending for the the commander who is the best at subduing barbarian rebellions, who is the commander in Britain. So he travels the whole way from Britain to Judea, I mean, an enormous distance. And the Judeans do end up crushed. And um, the very name of Judea is wiped off the map. And Hadrian says that the, the, the province will henceforward be known as Palestina, Palestine. So there are the seeds of... Um, geopolitics that we're you know still living with to this day and there's a, a further so we i guess i've often thought that the, you might think the diaspora began 68 70 but this is the final sort of push of the judeans becoming the jews separated forever now from the site of the temple separated from the ancestral land having to develop refine the, the synagogue, which has been going on probably for a couple hundred years, but now it's becoming what we know as the synagogue. And they're becoming, yeah. going from Judeans and becoming Jews. And likewise, a lot of people who are Christians and Jews now have to also become Christians. Um, there's also yeah, that process is going on as well. I mean, I think it sets a seal on the process that had begun with the destruction of Jerusalem because the temple gets destroyed in in, uh, yeah. in AD seventy, and without the temple, you can't do the the kind of the cultic practices that had been mandated in in Hebrew scripture. So up until that moment, the, they must have imagined that there would be a, like a just as they they could have imagined that Hadrian would be like a Cyrus or a Dyrus, and yeah, he would they, let they, them I think back into the land. Definitely Judeans and, who are hopeful you know, that yeah. 
there are definitely yeah, Judeans yeah. are hopeful that Hadrian will step in and, and, and be a good guy. Uh, you know, he absolutely does not turn out to be a, a, a Judean favourite. Um, <laughs> but I think that, that it's the absence of the temple that really start, sees synagogues start to kind of replace with, with Torah, starts to, to replace the role that the temple had played. And it's from this point on that you start to get something that we today could recognize as, as Judaism with rabbis and commentaries on the law and, and the, the primary of the synagogues. But what you do get with Hadrian is, as you say, the kind of the rupturing of any sense of the Judeans with their ancestral homeland, because the only region of Judean settlement that survives really is Galilee, because that doesn't rebel. And so Galilee becomes the great center of um, Judean and ultimately, you know, we call it Jewish now, settlement. Um, so that's where the the Palestinian Talmud is written. Um, so it's a massive, massive, massively significant and momentous development. So that quote I began with from Gibbon describes a sort of serene, unchanging, wealthy, peaceful time. And yet, I think as we've as people, as listeners should have heard, there's a great deal of change. There is a great deal of, of alteration, and yeah. yet in the at, at, because you know historians we 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 study change, um, but such such is the Roman way that they transform, as you say, but never change. Such was the time honored Roman way of managing change. The phrase "novi race" novel enterprises remained what it had always been: a warning, a nightmare, a curse. Could you yeah. finish up by expanding upon that? The Romans regarded change as, as sinister and evil. Um, and so if they changed something, they would always do it with reference to, to what had happened in the past. And they weren't in any way unusual in doing that. I mean, that's what most peoples did. The idea that a progress is a, is a positive, that change is a good, is a, 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 a very, in historical terms, a very odd way of understanding things. Um, but the Romans are absolutely brilliant at it. They're a very pragmatic people. And Hadrian, in a way, is the kind of the representative figure of their genius for doing that. He finds ways that go with the grain of Roman tradition, but that nevertheless, you know, with the exception of the Judeans, ennobles the subject peoples and gives them a stake in the Roman world. So that in due course, um, you know, the, the Romans will become the Romeoi, the Greek word for the Romans. Well, my guest today has been Tom Holland. He is the author most recently of Pox, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. He's also co-host with another friend of the podcast, Dominic Sandbrook, of the podcast The Rest is History. Go give a listen so they can reach a billion downloads. Tom, thank you for being uh, once again on part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 